Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 19th, 2012. Yeah, you know, it's one of those days where there's too many things to talk about and not enough time. So I'm going to have to just do my best to make my way through what I can get through. Interesting news, though, um, coming in via email, like at the last second. I'll explain in a minute here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said and done in the name of Christianity that, well, just flat out contradicts what the Bible teaches, and so... This is all about learning how to slow things down <laughs> and stop and get you to think about what people are saying. That's really kind of the, the foundation behind critical thinking is uh, the idea is that you, you, you want to think through, you know, the implications of what somebody has said. That requires you to sometimes stop take what they've said in small pieces chew on it for a while and and see ask if it makes sense and when it comes to a pastor preaching um you know when it, when we're talking about it making sense it has to make sense in this sense not that your mind your reason what you think is reasonable is what's uh, what is to be uh, embraced because there's many things in Scripture that God has revealed that really cross, you know, run against the grain of what we think might be reasonable. Um, the question is, is what the pastor is preaching and teaching what God told us? Or did God tell us something different? So in order to answer that question, um, you know, and to learn how to do this, you know, for yourself... You must be in God's Word. You must be in God's Word. You know, um, over and again, you know, when you know, the way Scripture talks about our need for Scripture, um, even Jesus himself quoting the Scripture says that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, we don't we don't think of uh, the Bible in these terms, but that's kind of the metaphor is that it's daily food, it's daily bread. 
Um, yeah, I, in fact, I saw somebody send out a tweet, you know, uh, maybe today, I, I, you know, I, I just, you know, so many people send out these little things and I, that was one that I kind of flagged in my mind. Yeah. The concept I think is, is sound is, is that the Bible is meant to be daily bread, not an occasional cake. You, you get, you understand the implication there is, is that, so, um, the idea is, is that the things I do on this program, the things that, you know, you know, I'll say, wait a second, that's not what the Bible says. Um, you know how I know the Bible doesn't say that is, well, I don't actually have any superpowers, like none whatsoever. Um, I'm the most unoriginal guy on the planet. And so the idea is, is that um, on a daily basis, you know, I'm in God's word and I've been teaching God's word um, in the church now for 20 years. Uh, more actually a little longer than that now but uh, the idea is this is that you learn by reading and by teaching and you dads out there um i want you to hear me uh, you know listen to what i'm about to say um you are the head of your family the job of feeding your family doesn't end with paying the bill for the uh, grocery store um not at all in fact you have a responsibility, fathers, to be teaching your children the Word of God and teaching them the Word of God in such a way that year after year after year you're in the same stories over and again. That the, you know, and you know, you're, 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 the idea is that you're teaching them the full counsel of the Word of God. Your pastor is also part of this process so that you understand what God's word, you go to church to be fed God's word yourself. So the idea is, is that as a family, you are to lead your family in prayer. As a family, you're to lead your family in reading and 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 uh, teaching them God's word. You want to know what God's word says? Dads, uh, when, the, uh, when dinner is done, don't rush to turn on the television. You know, we got we live in a day where we have DVRs. So, you know, this idea that my favorite program starts at eight o'clock and I don't want to miss it or the ball game starts at eight ten tonight, which, by the way, um, side note here, I'm very disappointed with the last two games of the Dodgers. Those of you living in Milwaukee, I I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I uh, frustrated. We know Dodgers threw away two games in the ninth inning. I just <clears throat> anyway. But the point is this, is that um, there you, you need to be in God's Word. You must consider being in God's Word every bit as important as eating meals on a daily basis. I don't think any of you would go an entire day without eating. Um, yeah, in fact... <laughs> You know, eating like, you know, once, you know, the, you know who does that? But uh, the point is this, is that if man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, don't let a day go by where you're not also in God's word. Read it, mark it, inwardly digest it, learn how to pray from it. Learn how, you know, there, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. You know, you, the, this is so vital. It's for you to feed your faith, for you to grow and mature in Christ, for you to learn how to teach others. It'll give you certainty as to what it is that God, God's Word says and doesn't say and give you confidence to boldly proclaim the truth and give you a backbone to stand up and resist those things that are not true. And so be in God's Word. Fathers, you, you feed your family God's Word. 
And, uh, and you know, like I said, your responsibility doesn't end with just paying for the grocery bill. Get in God's Word. And that, by the way, is I, I'm absolutely convinced that um, the best pastors are the ones who've learned how to teach their family. You, you begin there. That's where... You know, you get the best questions anyway. I mean, you know, you're teaching your kids. You'll read something and your kids will look at you like, okay, what does that mean, Dad? I don't understand. And then you have to figure it out. And so, that you know, it, it you know, the best way to learn is to teach. So anyway, that's at least something I've picked up along the way. But um, all right, so here's what we're going to do today. I've got email that I've got to get into. Like I said, I got a last second email that came across the, the uh, wire today that I went, whoa. Oh, had no idea. Um, I and by the way, I've got three Pringle jingles that have come in so far. I got to share those with you. Um, I've got a Perry Noble update. I've got um, a David Barton update. Hmm. You know, um, the the more I uh, take a look at the things that David Barton has been saying publicly. Um, the more I realize that this gentleman needs a good, um, well, he needs to be rebuked for his false teaching is what it comes down to. And he needs to be challenged to straighten up his act because um, what he is doing is wrong. And I don't care how right his cause is, you don't fight for the right cause the wrong way. And what I mean, you'll you'll understand what I mean by that when we get to it. So i got a Dave Barton Update and I've got a video that uh, I'm gonna that it seems you know pretty straightforward, but uh, the the gentleman in the video asked some good questions about Lutheran theology and what do we mean when we talk about Lutheran Lutherans having the best theology? He has some interesting points that I think are worth interacting uh, with, and somebody had uh, pointed that out to me. And then uh, for uh, contestant number five today, we're we've got another bad Easter sermon in our. Um, uh, the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. But by the way, I, I, I got I got news that came in via email today. Um, I, we're going to be reviewing a, a sermon from a mega church in Vermont, and the uh, this is a listener nominee, by the way. And I, I want I want you all to know this. Okay, <laughs> it's important for me to say that every one of you who have submitted. Uh, you know, sermons for, to be nominated for the worst Easter sermon of the year. I want you to know I have gone through every single one of the sermons that you all have nominated. And uh, there's a few of them that made the cut. I just want you all to know that. And if your sermon that you nominated didn't make the cut, um, it it does not reflect poorly on you at all. In fact, every one of them could have made it into it, but I had there, you know, I had to narrow it down to the uh, the, the six finalists that we are going to be reviewing. Uh, you know, but uh, and so I picked the ones I did for different reasons. And one of the things I found that was interesting is is that some of the sermons had the same problems. And so I yeah I had to like lump the the sermons into different categories. The reason why this one goes wrong is this and funny enough the reason why this one goes wrong is the same reason. And so um in those cases what I've done is I took the worst of the two that made the same mistake if that makes any sense. And so but I do want you all I, and I want to thank every one of you for your nominations. Um <laughs> you have led to frustrative disbelief a brain explosion on my part with uh, some of the things that you uh, uh, some of the sermons that you've suggested but uh, we're going to be listening to a church from a it's called Essex Alliance Church apparently it's in the uh, 
the fine state of uh, Vermont, and it's um, preached by a guy by the name of Scott Slocum. And uh, he's got a he, <laughs> this guy's got the uh, the pastoral skills of a mafia don. Uh, you know, he's got the pastoral skills of somebody like uh, Tony Soprano. You know, you know, kind of a mafia don type. But boy, I got to tell you this <laughs> this one, who it it his problem. And I'll kind of I'll key you into where the problem is is that believe it or not, he actually tries to exegete the message paraphrase. And um, as a result of his attempts at exegeting the message paraphrase, we are off to the races as far as like in, you know, trying to make points that the Bible actually doesn't make if you would read it using just a good translation or if you knew the biblical languages. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do in hour number two today. So, I you know, I recommend that you... Make yourself comfortable. Your listener experience is really important to me. And uh, that being the case, it's important to let you know that fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. I am a firm believer that uh, if you have not listened to Fighting for the Faith, wearing a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, you are missing out. In fact, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, on the left-hand side of our um, website there, you will find a link where you can acquire a, a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers you know, for yourself if you'd like to you know, enhance your listener experience. Keep in mind, though, the weather does, you know, have an impact as to whether or not that really makes your listener experience the best, uh, because if it's too hot, then your feet start to sweat, and then that detracts. So you just keep in mind, weather does is an important thing. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, don't have a problem with that. Uh, Keep in mind, the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness, and that drunkenness is the sin, so you don't want to abuse that good gift that God has given us. And with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and we're going to start off with a little bit of email. Okay, we're going to begin just with some Pringle jingles. Now, uh, the other day on the program, I compared um, Phil Pringle with Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel, who was uh, the famous, well, fundraiser, if you would. And I think that's—I think it's safe to say that uh, Johann Tetzel had as his vocation fundraiser for the Roman Catholic Church at the, just on the eve of the uh, of the Reformation. In fact, he was, in order to help raise funds, money sufficient for pay, paying for the building project that became known as St. Peter's Basilica out there in uh, in Vatican City in, in Rome, um, he was given the authority to sell indulgences. And um, so he went, you know, basically pieces of paper, you know, that uh, took, you know, took off time and purgatory and things like that. And he came up with a famous jingle. And the famous jingle was, uh, when a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. You know, classic uh, theology of glory, uh, bad bad theology that can't be supported from Scripture, all in the hopes of, well, making money and raising money. Well, those of you, since I made the comparison, I have received several, three at, up to at the up to this point of people who've decided to try their hands at coming up with their own Pringle jingle, and uh, and so you know, I I can't say I I favor any particular one yet, 
but I want to read them to you. And uh, so we'll go we'll go at it this way. Dan writes, and um, he sent this in via email, and I'm not exactly sure what city he's in, but based upon uh, the area code for the phone number that he gave me, I know that Dan is somewhere, somewhere in uh, this, the, uh, the, the great state of Colorado. So that's all I know. And from what, what I can tell based on his area code, He's in the um, the southeastern quadrant of uh, the great state of Colorado. So, I mean, that, you know, just, it, <laughs> that's all I know. But Dan writes, here's his attempt at a Pringle jingle. And here, here we go. <clears throat> when a check in the offering plate drops, a miracle straight from heaven pops. Okay, that's a fair, fair uh, try. So, yeah, again, that's a, when a check in the offering plate drops, a miracle straight from heaven pops. Okay, good, good attempt there. And uh, and then here's another one. Um, Lisa, who is uh, a friend of mine on Facebook, she posted on my Facebook wall. She says, uh, this is her attempt at a Pringle jingle. Um, uh, Want a miracle today? First fill Pringle, you must pay. <laughs> Want a miracle today? First fill Pringle, you must pay. Got it, Okay. And then our our, our last one um, comes from Robert, and uh, Robert again he writes on my Facebook. I, I yeah he you know he's a friend of mine on Facebook, and he writes on my Facebook wall. Um, uh, Guten Tag, ich bin Johann Tetzel. That would be I'm Johann Tetzel. He says, uh, this is his jingle by the way. He says, if you sow your seed with Phil Pringle, sit back, free God to be your Chris Kringle. Okay, so these are some good attempts at the at a Pringle jingle to go along with the. <laughs> <laughs> kind of in the Johann Tetzel strain there. But so if you would like, you know, to try your hand at writing verse uh and you have an idea and you're thinking, you know what? I have a better Pringle jingle than that. Uh you can either post on my Facebook wall uh or send me an email and uh we'll pick those up and pass those along. But now to the uh the other more important email that literally um kind of that came in right before I went on the air. And uh, and that's a, a story. Um, well, Janice writes. She says, "Chris." By the way, and the the, the headline reads, uh, the subject matter reads, "Worst sermon vote." Okay. Um, she writes, "Chris, I, I don't have to hear all seven sermons. Plagiarism is a horrid thing." Now, those of you plagiarists, some, some somebody plagiarized. This is referring to the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Um, Janice is actually writing to let me know that one of this year's contestants for the worst Easter sermon of 2012, she is accusing him of plagiarism. Yeah, it's true. So, I mean, this is this is a serious charge. And so she says, a plagiarism is a horrid thing, and stealing your sermon from a woman's book is even worse. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh-oh. So, according to Janice, she's making the claim that one of our contestants this year for the worst Easter sermon of 2012, is guilty of plagiarizing a woman's book. <laughs> she says, so, <clears throat> and and not only that, of not even giving credit to the woman. Okay, so, um, so, so, um, stealing your sermon from a woman's book is even worse. No credit, as if there were anything worthy here, was given to Beth Moore in his sermon. I've supplied a link to a book review of the book. So Mr. Potential didn't even reword the three ways that Beth Moore says that you can get into a pit. 
My vote, therefore, is for Troy Gramling of Potential Church. Honesty is not a policy at all. Whoa. So, I mean, this is news to me. Okay, so, you know, I mean, at this point, I mean, I, you know, I, we're, we're still going to have the vote, but she's basically at the, I, I need to let you all know before you have the opportunity to vote at the end of the week. Tomorrow, at the end of tomorrow's program, we will be putting up at fightingforthefaith.com a way for you to register your vote for who you think should win the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And Janice has let me know here that uh, it is her contention that Troy Gramling of Potential Church. Now, the Potential Church, um, they're not really a church. They're only a church in Potentia. Um, and so I, that being the case, I mean, you know, it was, I had to actually check the rule book to see if he was actually qualified to, to be in the contest. And sure enough, he, it, he technically falls under the category of vicar. You know, he's not really a pastor then because Potential Church is not really a church. So, <laughs> Yeah, we got we had to really look at the uh, the fine print here, but she's making the claim that in his sermon, which I was cracking up because that was the most ludicrous thing I'd ever seen, um, that well, he's guilty of plagiarizing Beth Moore, and so she sent me the link to a a book review, and the by the way, the name of the book by Beth Moore. <laughs> book I have not read. It's called Get Out of That Pit, Straight Talk About God's Deliverance by Beth Moore. And uh, apparently, um, you know, this, this is an interesting read. So so I'm reading from the Discerning Reader, discerningreader.com. If you go to that website and you go on their search bar, you can look and you can type in Get Out of That Pit. And uh, the Discerning reader, reader Editorial Review, written by Leslie Wiggins, you know, she says this book is not recommended, okay? So let me read a little bit. Though not without value, this book is long on popular psychology and short on sound theology. Well, that sounds a lot like um, Troy Gramling's sermon. Uh, it takes one to no one. Isn't that what we said in retaliation to a schoolyard taunt? Yet Beth Moore turns the phrase... Uh, using it to imbibe hope in, uh, in, you know, in those Christians who are living in pits. Having lived so much of her life in one pit after another, it's, it is her pleasure and passion to show other pit dwellers the way out of their own personal pits in her latest book, Get Out of That Pit, Straight Talk About God's Deliverance. In a very interesting and gutsy move, the forward is penned, by the one man who knows the real woman, Beth Moore, her husband, Keith, without a doubt, after more than 25 years of marriage, he alone is qualified to attest to the genuineness of her freedom from the pit. <laughs> sure, they could be in collusion with one another to validate her credibility on the subject of pit dwelling and finding freedom in order to sell books, but I know I, I doubt it. Uh, when he writes that she's no phony, I believe him. The book is replete with words of affection for Jesus and one another, it's sweeter than cotton candy, not to mention the romance she speaks of having with Jesus, the love and admiration she and Keith have for one another. If you've ever met her, which I have, I though I don't count on her recalling it or participate in one of her video studies, then you want, you'd want what she has with Jesus too, and no doubt many women have already turned to this book in her studies to help them do that. As for her Bible studies and other books, Moore shares so much of herself that the reader feels like Beth is her new best is their new best friend. She seems willing to share anything if it would help other sister experience freedom in Christ. 
So yeah, so the idea here is is that apparently um all of that pit dwelling stuff that um Troy Gramling was preaching about that we reviewed here, he flat out plagiarized that from Beth Moore's book, Get Out of That Pit, and never even gave credit to Beth Moore for the concepts or the ideas. He just preached it as if it was his own ideas. Sad, sad state of affairs when, uh, you know, in order to concoct the worst Easter sermon of the year and to, you know, to try to give yourself an edge, you you have to resort to uh, plagiarizing Beth Moore. <laughs> oh, man. So there you go. Um, yeah, kind of sad. But, um, you know, something for you to consider uh, when the time comes tomorrow for you to um, vote on the worst Easter sermon of the year is that there's good reason to believe that Troy Gramling flat out plagiarized his pitology sermon content from Beth Moore's uh, book, Get Out of That Pit, and uh, and never once even gave her credit for um, the uh, content of his sermon. So something to keep in mind. As far as I'm concerned, that would, you know, <laughs> it should, shouldn't disqual him from, disqualify him from being the pastor who preached the worst sermon of 2012. In fact, that actually should guarantee a win as far as I'm concerned. But again, I don't get to vote, so I'll have to leave the voting up to you all. Okay, moving along... Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. That means we're doing a Perry Noble update. It doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as as I I say it with a flare. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a Yeah, there we go. That's our music for our Perry Noble update. And uh, wow, um, <laughs> Perry Noble, he's like Patricia King. He's the gift that keeps on giving. Man, um, somebody needs to have a chat with him. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. But uh, Perry Noble on his blog today, the name of the blog post is Four Problems the Church Has Got to Deal With. Now, I want to point this out here. Um, <clears throat> Perry Noble would be the first person to throw bloggers under the bus. And I do think it's important to note that, well, Perry Noble's a blogger. Do with that information as you choose. I mean, you know, one of the things I point out about uh, postmodernity, okay, if you're familiar with postmodernism and what's known as postmodern deconstructionism, uh, language deconstruction, uh, this is a. Uh, Technique that actually uh, you can say was pioneered by uh, uh, the uh, 
the Nazi philosopher Martin Heidegger, uh, who was an existentialist, uh, was picked up as a project by Paul Demon, who again also worked for the Nazi Party, and then taught them to uh, uh, you know literary guys, you know like Jacques Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault, and guys like that. And uh, and you know what I find interesting about and by the way, Derrida actually taught his ideas to Doug Paget. Doug Paget is a student of Derrida, and um, it, it, this. Just flat out historical fact. But what I find interesting about language deconstructionists is, is that they expect you to take language um, and deconstruct it. Everybody else's except for theirs. Okay, for instance, when a postmodern deconstructionist is writing about language deconstruction, they are expecting that you take their words at face value. And their liter and what they're writing, at, you know, at just read it plainly and understand it and understand it plainly, so that you can then learn their techniques and apply it to everybody else's books except for theirs. Okay, just plain and simple. And so um, I'm reminded of it. You know, um, last year I well, was it the year last year, the year before that. Um, it was the year before. It's been a while now. Um, yeah, it's uh, almost well. It's been a year and a half. A year and a half ago, I debated Doug Paget. And uh, on the eve of our debate, uh, we were uh, we were having you know we, we were uh, actually uh, we were all together as a group you know the, all the all the different debaters and the people who were involved in the debate and the people from the church uh, we uh, we went out to dinner at one of the local restaurants out there uh, near Portland and um, in Oregon and I was sitting across the table from Doug Paget. And Doug Paget at that point uh, had given me a free copy of his book having to do with something to do with, you know, how to do church in the inventive age. And he had asked if I would read it. And I had read it. And, and during our conversation, he asked me what I thought of it. And um, what I know about Doug Paget, who has a history of engaging in language deconstruction. By the way, we'll get to Perry Noble here in a second. Um, he has a history of language deconstruction and uh, utilizing and employing it to tear down the uh, the traditional church and rebuild this emergent thing that he's doing. Uh, and so I asked, I you know, I said, you know, I, Doug, I read the book. Um, it's it's you know it was uh, you know it was on my iPad. And so I, I said straight up, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, are you, uh, are you a Hegelian? And he looked at me and he was kind of frustrated. Like right immediately, he went from like curious to frustrated. I mean, there was no in between. And, and he said, what is, whether or not I'm a Hegelian have anything to do with what I wrote in my book? My book isn't about Hegelianism. Right. Well, and, and and I said, well, that's true. I mean, if you were to just read the words and, you know, and read it for the plain meaning, you, you'd never come to the conclusion that you're a Hegelian. But the reason I'm asking the question is, is because, you know, I want to be consistent. And, uh, you know, since you're a good student of Jacques Derrida, you've learned that um, that uh, that what a book says is not the way you're supposed to read it. You're supposed to be in conversation with it. Uh, with you know, with with the text itself, and 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 that means that it has multiple layers of meaning. It can mean just about anything. And so what I said, the funny thing is, is that when I used Derrida's technique on your book regarding church in the inventive age, the thing the thing that I was experienced while reading it was that I came to the conclusion that you were a, a, a Hegelian, and he was not happy, just not happy <laughs> at all. And the subject got changed. So again, uh, language deconstructionists, they expect you to deconstruct everybody else's works except for theirs. Uh, which, by the way, is kind of the point I'm making here regarding Perry Noble. Perry Noble, he lashes out at bloggers, and yet he is one. 
because Perry Noble blogs, I, should, I mean, I just I want to ask the question: Should we assume that he well lives in his mother's basement? Does uh, Perry Noble, you know, stay in his pajamas all day long, eating Cheetos uh, and typing on a laptop while sitting in a beanbag in his mom's basement? He is a blogger, you know, I, and so I think that's important to note. Um, I, you know. If, these are good questions to ask. But anyway, uh, the the name of the, the blog post in question is Four Problems the Church Has Got to Deal With by Perry Noble. Okay, <clears throat> number one. I don't think I'm going to get to all of these because, <laughs> oh, man. Number one, <clears throat> we are answering questions that no one is asking. So apparently there's a problem in the church, Okay, a big problem. So such, this problem is so big that Perry Noble has gone to his blog to basically get the problem out on the table so that we can all, you know, see that it's there. All right, so here's the problem in the church. The church is answering questions that no one else is asking. Oh, no, gasp. Whatever will we do? <clears throat> the, um, I mean, the sharp philosopher Perry Noble writes, he says, I'm glad that we can debate theology and know terms that make us seem intelligent and cause other people to scratch their heads. However, at the end of the day, people are not asking about the five points of Calvinism, the trichotomy or dichotomy of the spirit or the peccability, impeccability of Christ. They're asking, quote, why is my life falling apart? Or how do I get past the fact that I was sexually molested when I was eight? Or how do I, or how do I, as a single mom, lead and provide for my family? Too many people are so obsessed with their theological labels, I believe that they don't actually have to do real ministry. Ah, yeah. You'll notice here that you know, this sets up what I would consider a false dichotomy, and not only that, um, well... It doesn't even understand. It shows like he has no understanding of theology at all. So apparently, the only thing that really in in Perry Noble's world that that is considered real ministry is that ministry that would help somebody whose life is falling apart, um, somebody who would uh, help somebody deal with uh, you know, some kind of an emotional trauma from their childhood. Or help them provide for their family. Theological stuff, that's not real ministry. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, you know, but see, here's the deal. Um, Perry, then here's my question for you. Um, why is it that uh, when people show up to your leadership conferences um, in the spring, um, that uh, you have breakout sessions that have to deal with things like, you know, vision casting and how to get people behind the vision? Last time I checked, um, uh, people whose lives are falling apart, um, or who've been experienced a childhood drama, or you know, their trauma that you know has left them emotionally scarred, or uh, single moms. I mean, they, I mean, vision casting doesn't solve any of those problems, does it? I mean, you know, um, so yeah, um, I don't think you're consistent here. I think you're actually very hypocritical, and not only that. You show that you obviously don't even know your Bible at all. Because here's the deal. Theology is actually the study of God's Word and what God has revealed. That's what doctrine is all about. And God's Word actually commands pastors to teach those things that are in accord with sound doctrine. Okay? That being the case, um, here, here's the deal. Um, we are called to teach such things as well. 
the nature of God. Yeah, it's and see when we talk about the nature of God and what God has revealed about his nature in God's word, well lo and behold, we come into the theological category known as the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, and uh, boy, you know, so in, in his world, you know, it, you know, the, talking about the Trinity then, you know, and actually a, a pastor from the pulpit opening up God's word and teaching what God has revealed about his nature, well, that's not real ministry. No, because, you know, it doesn't help somebody who's experienced a childhood trauma. No, no. See, the only thing that counts as real ministry is something that apparently it deals with the here and the now, but has nothing to do with what God has revealed about it. That's not real ministry. And then if you were to, you know, if you were to teach something like, you know, the virgin birth of Christ and why it's important that Christ was born of a virgin and why that doctrine is, well, a cardinal doctrine, that if you deny it, that you're not a Christian, well, that's not real ministry either. But then let's kind of get something hit a little closer to home because I'm going to point something out here. All of these these things that um, Perry pointed to, why is my life falling apart? How do I get past the fact that I was molested when I was eight? Or how do I, as a single mom, mom, lead and provide for my family? Okay, all of these, funny enough, are answered using a theological category. Okay, now the Calvinists call this total depravity. In the circles that I run in, I'm a confessional Lutheran, we talk about original sin. And total depravity and original sin I mean, the, technically and qualitatively, these are similar teachings, and they point to the same thing. And it explains why there's evil in the world. And it also then, by rightly explaining and helping us understand why there is evil in the world, we understand what, you know how it plays out in people's lives, and ultimately we have the solution. Okay, the solution for the problem of total depravity is the vica the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Oh, now wait a second, the vicarious penal substitutionary of death on the cross that has to deal with the fact that you know in the Bible teaches something called monergism, and monergism teaches that by nature we're all born dead in trespasses and sins as a result of what Adam and Eve did in sinning and rebelling against God. See, that sinful rebellion against God has caused all of us to be born with inherent sin in our lives. We are born, we have a corrupted, sinful nature that every one of us has and, 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 and causes us to be born at war with God. And that takes on all kinds of forms, and the consequences of our sin are lives that are falling apart. One of the consequences of our sin is that it creates a world in which evil thrives and dwells so that eight-year-olds are, are molested by people in their family. Okay, and it also causes in you know you know one of the effects of our sin is that we now have to provide for ourselves by the sweat of our brow. We have to work and toil and struggle. All of that, by the way, is answered from the Bible theologically and doctrinally. But if ministry is only helping people out without explaining how it is that we came to be in this situation, well, then he's not really ministering to these people because in order then to explain to people how they've participated in this and how God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all of the sin sinfulness, well, well, then you can't, if that's, you know, again, you know, 
are obsessed with theological labels, I believe, so they don't actually have to do real ministry. Real ministry only has to do with the here and the now. Well, then getting to the cross and preaching the cross, that takes theology too. And, of course, that doesn't help somebody whose life is falling apart, does it? Because the cross and Christ's resurrection occurred 2,000 years ago. That's just theology, right? Uh, Christ's vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross isn't going to help somebody get past, uh, you know, you know, their psychological hang-ups from their being abused as a child, is it? Or will it? You see, I'm sorry. Perry Noble, again, is showing that he's not qualified to be a pastor because Christianity understands that we are to both teach what the Bible teaches doctrinally and theologically as well as perform and do good works because we are new creations in Christ to help and love and serve our neighbor. Ministry is not ju- is not an either-or when it comes to teaching theology or helping somebody. It's both. It's both. And apparently... All that repenting that uh, Perry Noble did a few weeks ago, apparently he's gone back on his repenting because point three in his blog post, he says, we use discipleship as an excuse to not do evangelism, to which I would basically say, you're going back to this one, really? You're going to pit evangelism and discipleship against each other. It's both. It's not an either or. Yep. So uh, Perry Noble apparently has um, fallen off the wagon and uh, slip back to his old ways. And all those things he repented of, well, I'm questioning as to whether or not he's repented. And he, again, shows that he's completely obtuse when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches regarding the importance of theology, sound theology, and sound doctrine. Because um, real ministry requires a pastor to do both. Both, not one or the other. Okay, we are way late on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, somebody who tells you that real ministry only occurs with what you do for somebody else doesn't understand biblical theology. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, I don't have a um, an intro for this, uh, but uh, somebody sent me the link to this on, uh, on my Facebook wall, and the name of the YouTube video is, um, Do Lutherans Have the Best Theology? Do Lutherans have the best theology. And I, I think it's worth listening to, and I, I want to interact with this a little bit here. So here we go. One of the interesting things I hear oftentimes amongst my Lutheran clergy friends and also from the Synod and even uh, in my time in seminary is that Lutherans have really good theology. There's this assumption made that we actually have the best theology. And usually when that statement is made, it's backed up by um, a story about Billy Graham. Billy Graham, the great evangelist from the 20th century, was supposedly said in the 60s, maybe in the 70s, that Lutherans were a sleeping giant, that they had this really great theology, but they had yet figured out how to deploy it. And so once they did, boy, would they become popular. That was the idea that came out of this story. And so, by the way, I've never been able to find where Billy Graham actually said that. It's always justified that we have the best theology. We're still working on how to get it out there. 
Um, this is an interesting statement to make. I've said it myself several times, um, but upon further reflection, I'm not so sure that it's the best thing to say, and there's a few reasons for that. The first reason is that it's hard to know exactly um, if Billy Graham said anything like this to begin with. The, the one thing that we used to back it up um, doesn't seem to have happened. Billy Graham did say that... Not only that, it seems kind of silly pointing to Billy Graham to prove that the Lutherans have the best theology. <laughs> I mean... Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I remember somebody telling me that, and my first impression was, really? Billy Graham knows a lot about Lutheran theology? I'm just learning about it right now. I mean, nobody talks about it in evangelicalism, and Billy Graham apparently is an expert. Where did he learn it? That, that, you know, that was my... The laity or the common person was the sleeping giant, and that um, if they would gather together, they would become a very powerful force to be reckoned with in the world, um, and that that would be an amazing thing that would have happen. Um, that that was probably appropriated by Lutherans, um, but but Billy Graham never seems to have said anything specifically about Lutherans in general, about Lutherans uh, in this way at all. Um, the other thing is that we don't entirely know what Lutheran theology is. Every time people do say good, the we have great theology or good theology, um, it's hard to know exactly what we're speaking of. Because okay, now, i got to disagree with the statement. If we're going to say Lutheran theology is the best theology or Lutheran theology is correct theology, um, it's not true to say that we don't know what Lutheran theology is. Okay, I would say that... The problem is, is that within Lutheranism, if you were to like take Lutheranism as a really big umbrella term, okay, and within the big umbrella known as Lutheranism, that would mean that there's a spectrum, okay, and as much as it pains me to say this, okay, that there are those who are, call themselves Lutherans, but they don't hold to the Lutheran confessions, and they don't believe the Bible to be the Word of God. So on the one hand, you've got the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and there's that word, Lutheran, and the word Lutheran has no meaning, okay? At least not, no, it's not historically grounded. You can't point to anything that they believe and point back to the Lutheran confessions and historic Lutheranism and say, aha, that's what, you know, that, you know, what they, they believe that. And then on the other hand, you got confessional Lutherans like myself, and we would say Lutheran theology has to be understood in light of you know you know the confessions that that is plain and simple um it has to be understood that way so you know and then then you can look at you know works like Johann Gerhard Martin Chemnitz um i would point to uh Pieper or Muller or even Schmid uh, from the 19th century these are guys who've done uh who've written you know the lutheran versions of systematic theologies if you would that you know that basically are good commentaries for their eras or defenses they're all they, in fact a lot of these uh are lutheran theologues uh you know the guys who well i don't want to say they're they're you know what they are they're dogmaticians they're not really systematic theologians it i would categorize them differently than uh, like a calvinist systematic theologian you'll find that our dogmaticians reiterate um, the, uh, the, the, the primary doctrinal categories of the Lutheran confessions. And oftentimes they're writing it in a way that's an apologetic against particular attacks against, or, you know, uh, against, you know, these confessions and that, those understandings of those doctrines in light of the times. So, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? But, uh, so, 
you know, the problem is, is if you're defining Lutheranism by looking at the spectrum of Lutheranism rather than looking at it, having Lutheranism being defined uh, confessionally, then you're going to have problems where you're going to you're going to end up a confused way of of doing it. You can't you can't look. At, I mean that I mean trying to define Lutheranism that way is like trying to define evangelicalism today by looking at the member churches of the National Association of Evangelicals. Okay, uh, when Tad Haggard was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, um, <laughs> well, you know, evangelicalism, according to him, could be anything from somebody who is a five-point Calvinist all the way to Benny Hinn. You know, in that the question is, how are you defining evangelical then in that sentence? You, you see, I think you're doing the same thing here, and I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know his name, but we can The 20th century certainly wouldn't wouldn't be able to capture a, a Lutheran theological sentiment. Um, we can speak of what maybe denominations have said, but in general, they all refer back to the confessions. Which is where you need to go if you're going to define Lutheran theology. And we can't look at individual theologians because um, denominational lines have become pretty much meaningless for the majority of, of theologians. Now, that's true in some circles that call themselves Lutheran. Um, it is a pretty regular occurrence that American Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians will be teaching at Lutheran schools and vice versa. And so it's, it's not as if there is one uh, consistent Lutheran set of ideas that we would call Lutheran theology. Now, see, hold on a second. Let me, I'm going I'm really in here. Uh, let me let me. Uh, let, let, I think that you're engaging in a little bit of faulty logic again. Um, you're you're looking for some. You're defining practice as somehow defining doctrine. You know, theo we're talking about theology um, and how that plays out in practice. You're, you know, sinful human beings are going to do sinful human beings. Let me, let me give you an example though. Um, it, it, one that I think everybody can get. Um, if you ever listen to the radio program issues, etc. Literally, you know. Um, you know, one of the best Lutheran broadcasts available anywhere. And uh, they have they have theologians from all different stripes on that program discussing different issues. And, and yet, at the same time, uh, nobody could accuse Todd Wilkin of, uh, of being anything less than a confessional Lutheran. Uh, you know, they, you know I mean, regular guests include guys like Al Mohler and, you know, guys from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You've got uh, Lutheran scholars who come onto the program. You've got, uh, uh, yeah, who's the guy from uh, Scripps Howard who uh, is, uh, he's uh, Eastern Orthodox. But uh, you, you, you get what I'm saying here is, is that, you know, they, they, ta they tackle all kinds of theological and, and different issues with guests from a spectrum across of, you know, across Christianity. And yet, you, you know, you, if you, Using this argument, you, you know, you would have to say, well, then we don't know what Lutheranism is because uh, Todd Wilkin had, you know, Albert Moeller on issues, etc. It doesn't exactly follow. So you got to be careful here. Lutheranism has to be defined in light of the confessions. Lutheranism has to be defined in light of the confessions. And that's how uh, the classical Lutheranism would argue. If you want to know what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess— you go to the Book of Concord, and when you read the Book of Concord, it's important to note this: that the yeah, um, that the Lutheran theologians. I mean, and you you see this, um, you see this in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and 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 this is a common theme that runs throughout the rest of the. Uh, you know, I, I would even say the formula of Concord and the Epitome. But the idea is, is that Lutherans took great pains to demonstrate that not only were these doctrines that they taught and confessed in accord with what God has revealed from the clear teaching from the Word of God, 
but that the Lutherans hadn't innovated. They hadn't added something new to the mix to come up with a Lutheran theology. In fact, Luther himself argued against the Lutherans calling themselves Lutherans. Um, yeah, because in reality, the, the, the idea, the essence behind the confessions was that they were doing everything possible, bending over backwards to demonstrate that they weren't innovating. They weren't coming up with something new, that this was not a new interpretation, a new novel theology, but everything that they taught was what was in accord with what Scripture taught and what the church historically has understood the Scriptures to teach in those broad blocks. So, um, I, yeah, again, I don't know this guy, but, you know, he's, for lack of a better way of putting it, he's asking a great question. However, it you know the answer the the answer's right there he said it you know they keep pointing to the confessions but you know at this point he's he's arguing backwards and and see that's the problem you know the, again it's like trying to define event what what does the word evangelical mean by pointing to the membership of the national association of evangelicals i think the term evangelical has to be dis, you know de, defined historically not how it's not how it's come to be practiced does that make sense let me continue, though, a little bit. Um, the third thing that that kind of has come to bother me about this statement about Lutherans having good theology is that it seems to be something that has been um, held over from the 19th century. Whenever I read the 19th century theology, uh, the Lutheran theology, I'm struck by just how much of it is built in reaction to what the English are doing or what the French are doing. There is the Or even what the Calvinists are doing. If you read Pieper, he, he spends a lot of time... Uh, critiquing uh, what he, con- he he considers to be Calvinistic errors that where rationalism has crept into uh, Calvinist thinking. This concern about the English theology that is too informed by economics or colonialism. Um, there's concerns about the French philosophy and their yep. philosophical schools and their Enlightenment thought and yeah. the revolution issues that they had. Yeah. Um, but the Germans all seem to think that they've held on to the true kernel of um, Christianity and that they are the ones who continue to believe that Scripture is God's Word and they're the ones who are still doing true theology. Um, I've seen it countless times and certainly this is more of the sentiment of that statement that Lutherans have the best theology. It seems to be something that's a little bit more smug than anything else. Wait, no, it was great. Okay. Ah, okay. You got to it. Okay, so here's the deal. Okay. This is not, by the way, a a uniquely Lutheran characteristic, okay? Let me go back to what he's saying. When he's reading 19th century Lutherans, it's funny because a lot of times they'll foil their theology against what they what, you know, you know, what they would consider to be misreadings of scripture and false theologies and competing philosophies. But this tradition, by the way, goes all the way back. It goes all the way back. In fact, what you find is is that Christianity um, from its inception, has always had challenges in the in the form of heresies and philosophies and worldviews that compete with and have a tendency towards distorting um, the biblical message. And so the Christian church has always had to wrestle with these competing ideas. And so you can say that uh, Christianity, uh, you know, early on had to define itself against or foiled against the backdrop of a competing system known as Gnosticism. And then Christianity had to tighten its definitions regarding you know the the nature of god during the christological heresies uh you know the arian heresy 
um, which ended up leading to uh, the, you know the doc, you know a formalized doctrine of the Trinity, um, and that had to be done in in kind of in that crucible of debate uh, with a, a alien ideas. Then you have the Pelagian heresy. Then you have other Christological heresies that have to do with the nature of Christ, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and and other heresies. So the idea is, is that you, when you read theology through the ages, okay, over and again you see Christianity wrestling with and speaking against competing philosophies and worldviews and stuff like that. So this is not a uniquely Lutheran idea. And we've got, and here's the deal. In our postmodern culture, it is considered arrogant and smug when you say, what I'm saying is true, therefore, ergo, um, what somebody who reads the Bible differently than this, they're not correctly reading the Bible. They're, what their, their theology at that point is in error. It's wrong. It's false. That's considered smug. That's considered arrogant. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's not arrogance and that's not smugness. That's, uh, unfortunately, that's what the culture tells us arrogance and smugness is. That's not it at all. Somebody who has the courage of their convictions, that's not arrogance. Okay. In fact, tell you what, I mean, any day of the week, I would rather have a good, honest, knock down, drag them out Bible debate with somebody who has a different view than I do, but really believes that their view is true, than some, than with somebody who says, "Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I think this is what the Bible believes, but I want. I don't want to be arrogant. I want to approach it humbly, and you know, and you know, and and so it's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. See, that's not that's not what it means to be humble, and believing some, believing your theology be true." And therefore, you know, it, you you know, even tacitly saying, well, that means that somebody who reads it differently than this is not is is false. That's not arrogance. That is not arrogance. In fact, that's what the Bible calls us to. Think about it. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to Titus, he says that you know, an overseer must teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. And be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, and then he goes on to you know make the you know, derogatory statements that you know uh, you know the Cretans are gluttons and liars, so therefore rebuke them sharply. Okay, so think about that. Rebuking them sharply, that means that you believe that your doctrine is right, and that the, and those those Cretans that they're that they're off, that they're false. That's not arrogance. That's not arrogance. That's the certainty that God's word calls us to. That's the level it calls us to. And at the same time, kind of keep this intention, is the idea that within Lutheran theology as well as all Christian theology, we don't appeal to ourselves internally. We appeal to the word of God. We, if, you know, as somebody who is a good Christian theologian, a good Christian, period, should say God's word reigns supreme. It is. It is the one that decides all matters. So if if we rightly understand what God's word says, then we believe rightly. It's the it's the norming norm. Okay, so where we are at odds with you know when we teach something contrary to what God has revealed, we are at odds with Scripture. And so we always approach it this way. I believe I personally believe that the Lutheran confessions represent a correct understanding of how God's Word, how God the Holy Spirit intended us for us to understand the Bible, plain and simple. However, if you can show me, biblically, 
biblically, where one of the doctrines of what's taught in the Lutheran Confessions is actually contradicted by God's word clearly, and that the supporting biblical doctrine, uh, the supporting biblical evidence cited in the Lutheran Confessions, um, it, you know, it, it, that those those verses were misunderstood and and can't be under, and God didn't intend them to be understood that way. Well, then I don't have a choice but to repent and to believe differently, right? So the idea here is is that you 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 come forward with certainty, with courage of your convictions, having studied God's word, that this is what it, what you believe, teach, and confess, and also with the understanding that hey. You know, I'm a sinful human being, and I understand that there's limitations to my abilities. And you know, as a sinful and fallen human being, so if somebody can demonstrate that what I'm holding to is not in accord with Scripture, I'll repent. I've done it. I've, so many times I've lost track in my life, and uh, you know, that's 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 absolutely the truth. In fact, I was a Lutheran before I believed all Lutheran theology. <laughs> Um, you know, I, you know that you know, and I and I came kicking and screaming to some positions, and the the reason why I say kicking and screaming is because I didn't want to believe them. I did not want to believe that that's what the Bible taught. But at, the more I wrestled with the biblical text, the more I realized, well, that's what the Bible taught. So I had to repent and change my mind. So yeah, I, I don't know who this gentleman is, but we 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 need to stop wringing our hands that somehow believing that what we say is that we believing that our theology is true and somebody else's is not true it's that that's somehow smug and arrogant that's not arrogance that's not arrogance that's that's courage of your convictions and you know that's you know in fact I, like i said i will have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with me and has and believes i have good biblical reasons to disagree with me any day of the week that's the person who i want to talk with because that's somebody who spent the time studying and we can have a good conversation but somebody who said i don't know you know no you don't want to go that route and by the way um, if you want a good overview on Lutheran theology, there's a new book that's recently out, um, and it's called Lutheran Theology, and it's by uh, Stephen Paulson, and it's from the Doing Theology series. There's a series of books out there, you know, so they got uh, an installment from the Catholics and the Anglicans and the Baptists and the Methodists and the uh, Reformed, and uh, Stephen Paulson uh, got the nod to uh, write the, uh, the the Lutheran theology. I, I've been working my way through it, and I've finding this book to be just fantastic and fascinating to say the least so worth a read if you uh you know would like kind of a quick cursory overview you know and the, and then also kind of in that light there's a, there's another great book yeah in fact um uh, pastor swirla is a contributor to this one and then and you can get this one from concordia publishing house and the name of that book is called the lutheran difference in explanation and comparison of christian beliefs again fantastic work and uh, and I think it it really fleshes out a lot of these issues that this gentleman brings up in his own in in his video, and so um, you know again worth the read and it does a good job of doing comparative works again so you can get that from uh, CPH called the Lutheran Difference. And tell you what I'll put links up at on at uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith to uh, Stephen Paulson's book and to uh, the Lutheran Difference if you would like to grab those books. But then again, if you if you want to know what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess, you can find out for free. Go to the bookofconcord.com. Now, this gentleman, you know, he he kind of muses and spends some other time, you know, some more time to it. But I, you know, I'm only, you know, three three and a half minutes into an eight minute eight and a half minute long video. But I, you get the point of what he's doing here, and I, I kind of get the idea of of what his angst is about. And he gets cut off at the end, by the way. 
But you know, the idea here is is that Lutheran theology is first and foremost defined against the confessions. The confessions took great pains to demonstrate that they weren't coming up with anything u- unique, and that what they believed, taught, and confessed was ecumenical in the sense that this is what the church has historically taught, and they back it up from Scripture, plain and simple, and from the church fathers. So that's the idea, and um, not too hard to do. And it's not arrogance to say that we believe this is true. Um, that's not arrogance. That that's arrogance is something completely different. So, anyway, all right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time. Contestant number cinco, number five in our Worst Easter Sermon of 2012 contest coming up. Not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Contestant number five in this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Newcomer. I've never reviewed a sermon by this guy before. And after this performance, (laughs) I may be checking back to see what other things he has to say. All right, here we go. The good, the bad, and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's Easter sermon 
comes to us via Essex Alliance Church in Essex Junction, Vermont. Now, I'm told by the listener who sent me the link here that uh, this is the only mega church in the state of Vermont. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'm just telling you what I was told. The um, gentleman delivering this message is Scott Slocum, the lead pastor. And the name of the sermon is Best Life Ever. Again, it was preached Easter Sunday. Now, there's a cautionary tale that goes along with this sermon review. And, the well, it goes something like this. Don't try ever to exegete the message paraphrase. <laughs> In fact, if you have a copy of the message paraphrase, just get rid of it. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. You know, it, it, it can't help you. It, it's just... It's bad. You want to stay away from that thing. And if you're a pastor, under no circumstances should you preach from it. And then if you do try, for whatever strange reason, don't ever try to exegete a passage from the message. Because then you're going to start making points that are not made in the original texts. And you can find this out. All you need to do is get like a good translation. Now, uh, personally, I don't think anybody should be a pastor unless they have a working knowledge of the biblical languages and can, you know, work functionally with uh, a biblical text in either Greek or Hebrew. That's just what I think should be happening there because the job of a pastor is to help us to understand what God's Word says. And believe me when I tell you, when you're working in the biblical languages in the original, um, yeah, it sheds a lot of light on what's going on in those texts that you can't see in any good translation. So, anyway, so let me... We're winding this up. Let's let it wind up here. Like the resolve there at the end. So, uh, here is um, Scott Slocum and his Easter sermon entitled, Best Life Ever. Well, my thanks, even before we look to the word here, my thanks to uh, everyone that made the day possible. Of course, your being here makes it all worthwhile. Uh, but uh, staying on our home campus in one way is very is much easier. It means we've got to do 10 or 12 services, um, but uh, it could be easier in that sense. There's a little work that goes with this. So my thanks to the people that make this happen. Uh, they've been put long hours in to get ready for the day. UVM staff, if, uh, you, if you see someone uh, here in the building that has a UVM shirt, thank them. They have been great and have been great hosts for us, and we're very thankful to be here. The night, the night before Jesus was crucified, he made a statement that was very interesting, and I, and I know it would be strange to the people that heard it. Here's what he said, a statement that when they heard it, they would say, well, what does this mean? He said this, it's from John chapter 14. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you are going to see me because I am alive and you're about to come alive. What? Oh, no. See, see again, this is from the message. Okay, so he's reading it as if this is what, well, J the Apostle John really wrote, and he didn't. And he's going to, he's so he's going to ex, he's going to make a point here as if this is what the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul, J the Apostle John wrote. 
and he didn't. Now, if you heard that in that setting, you would say, well, what does that mean? People would say, well, uh, of course I'm, I'm going to come alive. I'm alive right now. What does it mean I'm about to come alive? <laughs> Jesus never said it. So John 14, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the uh, Gospel of John chapter 14, and uh, we're going to try to figure out what's going on here. And we're going to do this using our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis, okay? Our three primary rules are context, context, and context. It is generally, not always, but generally, it's considered to be problematic when somebody is taking verses and ripping them out of context. Uh, the reason why it's problematic is because, well, we don't know what the passage says. When you put it back in context, uh, oftentimes you can tell if somebody's twisting God's word when you take what they're saying and put it back into its fuller context. And what I mean by that is you add four or five verses ahead of that verse, and then keep reading four or five verses after it, okay? So give yourself a good 10, 12, 15 verses so that you can orient yourself in the text to know what it is, the point that's being made, okay? So already we got a problem. John 14 is not a text that necessarily is has as its primary topic the resurrection. Now, I'm not saying the resurrection is not taught or mentioned there, but we need to understand if it's mentioned there, how it's mentioned and what the point is that Jesus is making. And the number two, the, the, a number two rule of thumb, one that I don't generally uh, uh, use here because, well, I sometimes think it's just basic knowledge, but I forget that there's a lot of folks out there who are new to this and don't know it, Okay. And that is this. You need a good, reliable translation. Okay. If you want to study the Bible, it is best that you study passages in context from a good translation. Now, um, I used to use the NIV. I taught from the NIV for a good 15, 17 years, something like that. And I found the NIV to be competent for the most part and frustrating uh, at other, other times. So I found myself regularly correcting the NIV. Um, so I don't teach from it anymore. When I teach, I prefer to teach from the ESV. However, I can still teach from the NIV if I have to. I, in fact, I recently have done that. Um, but So the, the, the text I prefer to teach from is the English Standard Version. I lovingly refer to it as the English Sanctified. That's not what it is. But um, the ESV put out by Crossways, and uh, it's, a, it's a fantastically good translation. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some shortcomings. All translations do, okay? But I can tell you this. It doesn't have nearly as many or as bad of da you know, downsides as the NIV has. So... I consider it to be a very good translation, and they also take great pains of, of uh, where there's a text that it can be read a couple of different ways. They do a good job of noting that and highlighting it so that you know that uh, this text can actually be read this way. The, the language is written in such a way, the biblical language, the originals, are, you know, that it could be translated using this reading. So they actually do a good job of giving you some variant readings uh, in different passages, which, uh, you know... I find it to be just refreshing, okay? Anyway, so let's take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And what I'm going to do is to try to give us um, 
a little bit of context, um, I'm going to start at verse 12. Okay, so the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 12 from the ESV. If you don't have a good translation, by the way, you need to get one. And if you don't have a good translation, I strongly recommend the ESV. Just you know, the, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through all the different ones. If you know, if you don't already have a good translation, get the ESV. It's you know, it's it's going to be good for you. Um, so John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus is speaking. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father has, glor- has that may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me and you keep my commandments, and I, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and and the world and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and that and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Okay, you will notice that the verse in question here is found in verse nineteen where he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Okay, Important to note there, future tense is being used. You will live. Okay, Because I live, you also will live. Okay, Knowing that in context from a good translation... Let's see what the point is that he's making here. Jesus makes a statement that anyone that was listening, it would capture their attention because they're already alive. But what could he possibly mean when he said to them, and you're going to come alive? You see, Easter is all about coming alive. Easter is the resurrection story. Jesus said this. When Jesus walked on this earth, he basically said, I am who I say I am. The Father sent me. I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And to prove that, here's what's going to take place. Jesus was very clear. To prove that, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to allow myself to be put to death. They're going to put me in a tomb. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. And after three days, I will come back to life. The resurrection will take place. And the fact that I am alive will be proof that I am who I say I am. Now, everyone knows that part of the Easter story. Right. Everybody knows that one. I'm familiar with that one. It's the second part of the story that so many of us miss. And the- Uh Uh-oh. The second part of the story is all about you. When Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to come back to life, and then he said, here's where you come in, and you're about to come to life as well. That's the second part of the story. I want to focus on... No, he didn't say you were about to come to life as well. That's not what the biblical text actually says. Again, a good translation. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Okay, now let's take a look at what's going on there again in the Greek. You will see me because I live, you also will live. Okay, 
The, the word there, uh, the Greek verb is zao, means to live, okay? And this is the uh, uh, plural future active, okay? Because I live, you also will live. It doesn't say you will come to life. It says you will also live. What is that referring to? Okay. Now, we would have to look at some other passages to try to figure out what's going on here. So Jesus is saying, because I live, you also will live. Well, let's look at a, a, just a regular, everyday, evangelical commentary, okay? A simple commentary, the, the NIV commentary. It's, I mean, the scholarship is okay. It's generally within, you know, it's, it's generally used within evangelicalism. It has some decent insights. Okay, so here, Jesus' allusion to a return may refer to his appearances after his resurrection, but he did not remain visible for long, nor were there any public manifestations. The motive for these appearances was the need to reassure the disciples who felt left as helpless orphans in an unfriendly world. Jesus knew that they, as spiritual children, would need the strong protection and guidance of a parent in order to survive. The resurrection of Jesus would also be the guarantee of life for the disciples, the eternal life that he would demonstrate in the same eternal life he promised to them. Aha! So this scholar, this commentator, who's just of your garden-variety evangelical stripe, says that what Jesus is referring to here is the assurance and promise that they too will live. Notice it's in the future tense. They will live. You're thinking, does it really matter, the grammar? Yeah, it actually really matters. The grammar really matters. The future tense tells us what Jesus is referring to here. Okay, So this is a promise and a guarantee, and you can flesh this out in other passages of the apostles who refer back to their hope of being raised again from the grave. Because I live, you also will live. Well, that makes sense because they were living at the time, but every one of them has since died. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus is referring here to a promise that they too will be resurrected from the grave just as he was. And a perfect, perfect you know, example of this is found, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So one of the things, the, another common principle here when you're trying to understand Scripture, context, good translation, and then the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's take a look at some passages now that refer back to, you know, this idea of what we sh- we too will live. Well, there is a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that talks about the same kind of topic. In fact, it's on this exact topic. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify to God about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people 
to be most pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice the, the phrase here. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjective, uh, subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Moving ahead to verse 35, but some will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, you foolish person? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not, a, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other kind. Of grain, but God gives it a body as He has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of human, humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of the one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star is different from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in perishable, uh, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life a living being, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from heaven, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven." I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and with this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So plain and simple. Okay, using some simple con you know, her exegetical concepts here. Context, good translation, and then scripture interprets scripture. So when Jesus says, because I live, you also will live, what 
he's referring to is the fact that we will be raised again from the dead. And this is fleshed out from the other clear passages that make it clear that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have been raised again from the grave to in, in, with an imperishable, immortal body. And that we too, when he returns, will be raised from the grave with an imperishable, immortal body, just like Jesus is. So when Jesus says, um, you know, because I live, you also will live, future tense, it's clear what he's referring to. And the other passages of Scripture bear this out. He's referring to the day in which we too will live and be raised from the grave with a new body and live forever, okay? That's what he's referring to, okay? But that's not what, well, Scott Slocum is referring to. Here, listen in. That this morning. Let's add to that verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this. He included everyone in his death so everyone could be included in his life. Now catch this. A far better life than people can ever live on their own. A far it, by the way, it's Second Corinthians chapter 5. Let me put a little context around this. He read verse 15 out of context. We'll read, put a little context around it from a good translation. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." big difference, isn't there? There's a huge difference between what this really says and what he says that it says. And why? Because he's exegeting it from the message paraphrase. You can't exegete a paraphrase. So now, apparently, the resurrection is all about having the best life possible. And what's the proof for this? Well, the message paraphrase reading of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. So we've already jumped the tracks here, and we are no longer in sound doctrine at all. This entire sermon from this point forward is making extrapolations from things that the Bible doesn't say. Best possible life. And let's be honest together as we begin. We all want the best possible life. It is what drives us, it's our desire, it's our dream, it's our quest. It drives us in our life to have the best possible life. Some of you say, well, no, I'm not driven by that. Really, what drives you? Worst life ever? You're driven to have the most... Yeah, again, that's a false dichotomy, and it's not even based on a sound reading from the text. Most mediocre life ever? Are you driven to have the most painful life? I mean, let's be honest. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little. Every one of us wants the best life we can have. We are drawn. So apparently Easter, it's really about you. And that's what he said. This is really about you. To those things that we think. And his justification, the message paraphrase. Will somehow give to us a better life, regardless of what you have. What I also know about this best life is the fact that most of us understand well the good life 
and are living a pretty good life. Maybe not the best life, but what I know about us is that most of us are living the good life. In fact, you probably are living the good life right now. Now certainly, in comparison to the world, we are living a very good life. In comparison. I mean, but in our own context, it's not too bad. Most of us have a place, a nice place to live. We have a good home, good job, good health. Yes, we'll complain about the gas prices being about five, you know, four dollars a gallon. I just came back from Israel, ten, you know, a couple of weeks ago, where they're paying nine dollars a gallon. I would suggest things aren't too bad. But even though you might be feeling pretty satisfied with our life, what if there was something more? What if there was something better than just a good life? What if there was something that maybe you missed? Maybe something in this quest for the best life, maybe something that you overlooked. If there was something out there, wouldn't you be interested in that? And of course you would. I would. If there's something better than what I have right now, I would want to know about it, and so would you. You see, what happens in many of our lives is this. So often in my life, I settle for what I have because I don't know that there's anything better. Isn't that true? Oftentimes, we just settle for what we have because we're not aware that anything is better in life. I'll give you an example. When I was a baby, my parents fed me strained peas. They tell me I love them. I don't get that because I despise them today. You'll notice this is all about, well, him. I mean, supposedly, this reading from the message, we just blame it on God. And, and so now he's got to make all of these biblical points. But none of these points are actually made in the Bible at all. Peas, period. But they tell me that I was a baby. I couldn't get enough strained peas. Now, that's not a surprise to me. Of course I love them. I had nothing else. I never tasted anything else. I haven't gotten to that place where I figured out there's a lot better things in life. I have a granddaughter born this past summer. The other day I tasted some of her food. Awful stuff. Awful. It is abuse is what it feels like. When, my, when our daughter, the daughter who gave birth to our, our granddaughter, when she was little, she had a cold, and so she'd be up late nights. And one particular night, Diane was in bed sleeping. I had Sarah. She was with me late night watching TV. In fact, I was watching the Yankees on TV late night. She was sitting on my chest, you know, just a little little girl, and still on formula and strain whatever. And I was drinking my Coke with a straw in it. And I sat there and I said, you know, I'll bet she likes something different. And so I took my straw, and I, I didn't open the cup and pour it out. I, I took my straw and got a couple of drops and pulled it out and put it on her mouth. And instantly, she was like a, a little baby chick with a worm, you know. And she learned that straw. She saw the straw, and she knew the good stuff was coming. I set her free is what I did. And not only, it was Coca-Cola, so not only did she get to taste the nectar of God, but she got... She got her first taste while watching God's baseball team with her dad. You know, you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, some of you who are booing. Listen, I, I know I've just repelled half of, the, half of the audience at least, now shut down. Listen, people ask me, why do you keep following the Yankees? Well, because I want to be on God's side. So that's why... I, forgive me and please don't leave. Listen, here's the point. By now in my life, I've tasted a lot of great foods and I'm never going back to strained peas. Right? Because I now know there's something better. Now listen very carefully, friends. I believe that God has brought you here to Essex Alliance Church at UVM today so that he could show you a basic truth that so many people miss. 
that he can help you found a profound key, and that is this, there is a better life. I believe that God brought you here today for the purpose of you understanding and maybe for the first time coming to grips with the fact that there is a better life, not just a good life. Now, I'm not a native Vermonter, but I've been here 20... And that's his main point for his Easter sermon. And the point was derived from something that the Bible doesn't even say. Five years, in fact. He got it from the message paraphrase. 25 years this week. And so in the 25 years, I've spent an awful lot of time talking with literally thousands of people about life. And here's what I've come to realize about this good life that we all live. Here's, the, here's what I found out. First of all, this good life leaves most of us exhausted. This good life that we, that we enjoy. Now, I don't know what he's preaching about. I don't know where he's getting any of this. Basically leaves a lot of us exhausted, right? I mean, it's kind of tough keeping up the good life. I mean, we're in this quest for the best, it leaves us tired. It leaves us worn out. It leaves us booked up, broken down, and a loss of energy. And the problem is this. When you get exhausted, exhaustion typically always leads to emptiness. We're living this good life, but a lot of people are finding themselves empty inside. And it kind of goes like this. They think to themselves, if this good life is so good, then how come I'm not satisfied with it? If this good, good life is so great, then how come when I get the next thing that I'm sure is enough, how come when I get that, that wears off and now I have to have something else? I've got to somehow keep up. I've got to find the next thing. It leaves us exhausted. Exhausted usually leads to emptiness, and on top of that, emptiness almost always leads to enslavement. What I mean by that is this. We get caught in this trap. We get stuck in this quest of I have to get more, I have to find more, I have to experience more, because what I have just doesn't seem like it's enough. A pastor friend of mine in Boston was in a hot tub in a local hotel, and he was in the hot tub with him was a gentleman that is one of the wealthiest and one of the most successful businessmen in the Boston area, and they're having a discussion as they're sitting in the hot tub. Here's what this guy said to my pastor friend. He said this, listen, I've done everything that they have told me I was supposed to do in my life. I have graduated from a prestigious university. I'm a, I'm a successful businessman. I have made money. I have saved money. I've invested money wisely. I have everything that I need. I married a beautiful wife. I've got children who go to the best private schools. I've set them up for life. Then he paused and he said this, and yet I worry every day that I have done enough. How do you have all of that and worry every day? Well, I get it. Because the good life is never enough, and we have to understand. So now we're just into subjectivity. What if somebody is, like, living the good life and loving it? Have you ever talked to a pagan who, well, that, I mean, they're doing really well and they're satisfied? I have. So they don't need Jesus. There is something more than the good life, and the Bible calls this the better life. The best possible life you can imagine. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that. The message paraphrase, which isn't biblical in so many ways, it is a complete tortured butchering of God's word. But God, the Bible doesn't say that. Folks, the Easter story, the resurrection story, is all about how we can have the best possible life. And I want to talk to... Uh, no, the Easter story is about how Jesus bodily rose again from the grave after being crucified for our sins under Pontius Pilate. This better life, best possible life stuff, the Bible doesn't actually say it. 
the the res the Easter's about Christ raising from the grave, plain and simple. This morning about what that means. I'll give you a quick outline right now. To have the best possible life means to have a life that's filled with meaning, a life that's full of energy, and a life that is freed by grace. Uh huh. Well, I'm glad we got something about f- grace in there. I'm I'm glad that will make some kind of a cameo appearance in this so-called Easter sermon. But this is not, I mean, the emphasis and the points here are all wrong. If you want to have the best life ever, I'll give you the outline for it. To have the best possible life you could ever have, it means to have a life that's full of meaning. It means to have a life that is full of energy and to have a life that... Really, where does the Bible talk about, where are the biblical passages that say you need to have a life full of meaning and energy? Is freed by grace. I want to talk about those three things, but I have to tell you... We're going to change packs real quick. Before I get to those... His battery pack's going out on his uh, microphone. That's why it's cutting out. I want to talk about these barriers that you see on stage. Pause for one second. Just talk amongst yourself for one second. Go ahead. Let's talk about some barriers. Now, here's what I mean by barriers. What happens is this. We begin to talk about spiritual things in our lives, and typically what takes place, about the time that we talk about spiritual things, we run into these barriers. There are these faith barriers in our lives, these things that kind of block us, that's these things that, that get in the way, if you will. Now, in the next couple of moments, I want to talk about some of those barriers. I want to talk about four of them. I can't get into, go into them all in depth, but starting next week, we're going to do three weeks, we're going to look at some of those barriers more in depth. We're going to start do a short series about evidence uncovered. And in that evidence uncovered, we're going to look at some questions like, so is there a God? Can we really believe that there's a God? We're going to talk about the Bible. How could anyone or why would anyone um, care about the Bible? And then we're going to look at Jesus Christ and see how he, you know, weighs out, how he stacks up against other religious leaders. But for just a couple of minutes, before we talk about how to have the best life possible, let's be honest that there are things in our lives that keep us from that best life. Here's some of the barriers in your faith walk. You hear about God, you think, well, maybe, but the problem is people tend to get in the way. We're going to talk about one of those barriers in our lives are people, specifically religious people. Now, you know those people, right? They're the weird ones. The scary ones. So apparently there's all these barriers to you having the best life possible. The first barrier, where does the Bible say this? The first barrier to you having the best life possible are religious people. It doesn't. This isn't a biblical teaching. He's not teaching from a biblical text. He's just making stuff up and blaming it on God. I mean, none of our people here, of course, not talking about us. But, you know, when you're thinking about faith, and all of a sudden you go, I don't know, because I don't want to be one of those weird Christians. Those holier-than-thou people, um, those uh, holy rollers, people that are inauthentic, people that are scary, hypocrites. How many times have I heard, have you seen in your life, a statement that says, well, I don't know about this Christianity thing because it seems like it's full of hypocrites. One person wrote me this. What keeps people from following Jesus is Christians who are hypocritical, who don't show love or respect for others. And then he gave me examples like this, he said, a churchgoer who tailgates you all the way to the church parking lot, or a churchgoer who cuts you off to take your parking space in the church parking lot, or another churchgoer who who won't let you out of your parking space after church because they want to be first. Now listen, I want to tell you right in front, I have talked to my wife, I've asked her to not tailgate anymore on her way to church, so I, we're going to try to fix that. Now here's the point, all through, all through the centuries, folks, there have been people who have done horrible things in the name of Jesus, right? 
There are always people, there are Christians that do terrible things in the name of Christ. And if you've ever said to yourself about Christianity, well, what about all those hypocrites, those people who claim to be Christians and who live hypocritical lives? What about them? If you feel that way, I want you to know that you agree with God. If you feel that way, you need to know that you're on the Jesus side on this issue. This is what the Bible says in 1 John. There are people who claim to follow me, and yet they don't follow me or follow my example. They live for themselves, and in doing so, they lie to themselves and to others, and their day will come. There are always people who claim to be followers of Christ, who don't follow his example, who don't do it right, who do it wrong. And they're barriers to keep you from having the best life possible. Those wicked, evil people, I mean, if it wasn't for them, you'd probably already be having the best life possible. So we... we we're going to villainize religious people. They're terrible. They're in the way from me having the best life possible. Hmm. Sounds like this guy has probably similar thinking to Perry Noble. You know, just saying. Yes, some people who claim to be Christians do very bad things. I would invite you to join those people who are trying to live absolutely genuine lives. I love Billy Graham's quote. Billy Graham said this. Just because trying to live absolutely genuine lies. What does that sentence mean? People cheat in golf doesn't mean that you have to stop playing golf. And yet when it comes to Christianity, so many people say, well, there's hypocrites. I don't think I want to be a part of that. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you know any group in this world? Do you know any group, any church, any organization, any group of people, do you know any group that doesn't have someone in that group that doesn't represent whatever group it is, that doesn't represent them well? We all know that in every organization, every group, there's going to be people that don't get it right, who don't do it, do it right. Right, like you on Easter, not preaching about Christ, but pre basically making stuff up from the message as if somehow that's what God's Word really says when it doesn't. Completely agree with you here. But this is not what we're supposed to be talking about on Easter. That's why your sermon's being reviewed. But my statement would this be would, th would be this. Please don't let that be a smokescreen for, for pushing Christianity away simply because of the bad behavior of some. Let's talk about a second barrier. Second barrier that a lot of us bump into is the barrier of churches. You think, well, churches, I mean, church should be an... Yeah, so now, so this Easter sermon... That isn't based on a biblical text. It's actually based on the message paraphrase and stuff that's in the message paraphrase that isn't in the Bible. Now we got to create a defense here. You know, you, you, God wants you to have the best life possible, and there's 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 barriers to you having that. Number one is religious people. Second barrier is churches. They're keeping you from having the best life possible. Fighting place, but church being a barrier, absolutely. In yeah, fact, it's, in fact, he's the church that's doing it right. All those other churches, they're off. They're off. They got to go. In fact, specifically, I'll say religious churches. You say, well, aren't all churches religious? Well, let me explain that for just a moment. Churches sometimes get in our way. Some of you who are here today came nervously because you've had a bad church experience. And so you're a little nervous. So my statement to that is, have a donut. You'll feel better. Um, you know, our thought was, let's have donuts. If everything else goes bad, hey, at least you got a donut out of the deal, right? Uh, but some of you came in very nervous because you have had a bad church experience. Interesting thing. More people are turned off by the church than they are by God. Most people aren't turned off by God nearly as much as they're turned off by churches. 
A number of years ago, I took a survey of people, of people in homes around our church and our community, and the question was very simple. If you don't go to church, could you tell me why you don't? What do you okay, by the way, this is the exact same approach that Robert Schuler took and the exact same pro- approach that Rick Warren t- took. We're going to ask, we're going to basically say the reason why non-Christians are not at church is because it's the church's fault. So we're going to find out what, what they like and what they don't like, and we're going to give them the church that they want because it's selfish for churches to not give unbelievers the church that they want. Think about church. Their answers were very telling. They said this, because church is boring. It was a waste of my valuable time. It wasn't relevant to my life. The sermons were long and dry. Apparently, they weren't talking about me. Um, Long and dry. They said, all churches want is your money and a bunch of judgmental people. A lot of people view church in that way. And listen, if that were my view of church, I wouldn't go either. So notice that the person he apparently is talking to is somebody who, well, isn't a churchgoer. So that's who he's talking to. And what's he doing at this point? He's basically taking, well, traditional churches that preach the Bible. You know, maybe they sing hymns. And he's throwing them under the bus. They're the evil people that are keeping you. They're the barriers. They're blocking you from having the best possible life. Those evil, wicked, religious people who go to traditional, boring churches, they're in the way of keeping you from having the best life possible. We need to get rid of those people, don't we? And now tie into that religion, because here's what people think about religious churches. Religion is all the things you have to do in order for God to like you, in order for you to please God. So when you put that religion piece in, it means, well, I have to go to this church, I have to pray a certain way, I have to be confirmed or go to confession, I have to pray a certain number of times a day, I have to make a pilgrimage, I have to eat certain things or not certain things. It seems like a whole bunch of rules that what it seems like to me is that church is a bunch of rules and the church exists to take your fun away. If that's your impression of God or his church, my friend, you're looking at the wrong God or the wrong church. I put it in this context. By the way, what he described there is legalism, which does exist in some churches. But he's painting with such a broad brush. Yeah. The Bible tells us that God is the creator and the giver of all good things. So how could the creator of sunsets and ice cream and cinnamon rolls, how can the creator of sex of the seasons of spring, of summer and fall, winter. How can the creator of little babies and little puppies, how can that creator say to you, I don't want you to have any fun? Folks, he creates all good things and he gives it to us for our enjoyment. So, Yeah, see, this is the guy who believes in the God of fun. He, he believes in the God who wants you to have your best possible life. And it's those mean old religious people who go to religious churches. They're the barriers to you having fun. They're the barriers to you having the best life ever. Boy, we got to get rid of those people, don't we? Don't discount Christ because perhaps you may have had a bad church experience. Let's talk about this next barrier. And that is the idea of to be a, to be a Christian or to have faith, I have to somehow abandon my intellect. 
And that's a pretty popular thought out there. Now, there are some churches where pastors behave this way, but not all of them. That to have faith... In fact, I go to a religious church. You know, we pray a certain way. You know, we play hymns. Yeah, we don't have relevant life tip sermons. You know, my pastor preaches about Christ from every passage of Scripture that he can get his hands on, including the Old Testament. But man, we don't abandon our intellect at all. ...means the abandoning of intellect. Folks, let me just tell you right up front, you do not have to check your brains at the door to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to check your brains at the door to have faith. The Bible makes sense. Now, I'm not giving this to you as a challenge. It was given to me as a challenge once. Someone said to me, well, have you read all of the religious writings of the great religions of the world or the writers? And my answer to that was, no, I hadn't. And he said to me, well, why not? So in my office... And I have now read, I have the Koran, I have read it. The Book of Mormon, I have read it. The teachings of Confucius, I haven't read all of them, there's thousands of them. The teachings of Buddha, I haven't read all of those, thousands of them. But I have read them, and I've compared them to the Bible, and I want to say to you, the Bible does make sense. In fact, if you read them all, and I would, and I would just say, I've done that so I can say this, and can begin to compare them, the Bible connects the dots together. It answers the soul issues of life. The soul issues of life are this. Well, why are we here? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's this life about? Is there meaning? Where's it all going? Those are soul issues every one of us has. Any pair here holding a young, a, a young baby and watching them grow, you wonder, what's, the future what's in store in the future in that child's life? And what is this all about? It answers the core issues. And let me be very bold here in this next statement. The Bible is not in conflict with science. The Bible is not in conflict with science. I love what St. Augustine wrote. He said this, If it happens that the authority of sacred scripture is set in opposition to clear and certain reasoning... This must mean that the person who interprets Scripture does not understand it correctly. He goes on to say, It is not the meaning of the Scripture which is opposed to the truth, but the meaning which one person wants to give it. He basically says this, where, where science, you know, where we know the, tr the truth of science stands here and the scripture is here, if they seem to be opposed, it's because we don't have all the details and it's because we're not interpreting something properly. Now, there are, there are folks that will say to me, I'm sure some in the room, that will say, you know what, I could buy into this Jesus thing, I could buy into the resurrection thing, I could buy into the whole God piece, but I need some scientific proof. For myself, I need some scientific proof for me to believe. And my answer to that is, really? And I mean it from this perspective. If that's where you're at, here's my question. Have you looked up, now I, this past couple weeks, I took time, and I looked up the thousands of academic disciplines in the sciences that relate to my everyday life and yours. And I'm not going to give you thousands, not even hundreds, but I'll give you a sampling. All of these academic disciplines are absolutely vital to your everyday life. And my question is this, have you looked these up, have you proven them to your, for yourself, so you understand them completely and you've proven them to be true? So have you studied and proven out to be true and you understand everything about geochemistry, geomorphology, how about hydrogeology? Uh, biochemistry, human anatomy, behavioral genetics, how about microbiology or molecular biology? Let's go to a different field. How about biophysics or applied? This is not a really good apologetic, by the way. It's, it kind of skirts the issue. Applied physics. 
electromagnetism, fluid dynamics, plasma physics, molecular physics, thermodynamics. You understand all those? Or do you do what I do and I wake up in the morning and I hit the light switch and I expect the light to come on? I go to the refrigerator and I expect it to be cold. I get an ice cube. I go to my car, I turn the key over, and the combustion engine begins. I turn on my computer. I go to my computer and I surf this thing called the web. I get on my phone and I send messages to people around the world who get them instantly. And most importantly, I pick up the remote control and push the button and it works. And I don't understand anything about what I just said to you as far as all these academic sciences. Do you get them all? And all I would say is this. When it comes to Christianity, I would challenge your thinking. So many times we have so many things in our lives. We have not proven ourselves. We don't understand them at all. We just take them at face value because someone said, oh yeah, it works. And I would suggest to you that you treat Christianity the same way. Be fair about it. Let me give you a last, a last barrier. Yeah, just you don't have to understand everything. Just know that Christianity works. And that's this barrier. So many people will say, well, what I don't get about it all is what difference does it make anyway? So Yeah, so what? Yeah, you know, because, you know, all those doctrines, you know, it's Trinity, the virgin birth, and you know, so what? Oh, what? In fact, I think this is kind of a key issue. I was uh, listening to the radio driving down to Boston. I heard a statistic, and I didn't, I didn't have a pen to jot it down. But the, st the statement said this. In some survey, I wish I could find it. Now, I, I would point out the fact that um, since the beginning of the sermon, he hasn't attempted, even remotely attempted, to actually preach a biblical message. In order to make all these points, he had to go to the message paraphrase because the message paraphrase says these things that aren't actually in the text. He's exegeting the message paraphrase, but he hasn't gone back to the biblical text. It's been a while. He's, this isn't a biblical sermon. It is designed to look like a biblical sermon because, well, he read something from the Bible, right? But none of this is taught in the Bible. He's just making stuff up. In fact... This is the purpose-driven apologetic against traditional churches dressed up to look like an Easter sermon with, a, with, a, with a, basically smoke and mirrors trick using the message paraphrase to make it appear like this is a biblical teaching. All this is is purpose-driven propaganda. It said six, only 6% only of Americans actually deny the existence of God, which tells me 94%, if this is accurate, 94% 94 of people actually acknowledge that there is a God. But what that tells me is most of us can't figure out why that's important. See, an awful lot of people believe in God. Eighty-some percent actually in a survey said this. They actually believe the resurrection, resurrection took place. They just can't figure out what difference it can possibly make in their life. I think for a lot of us, the barrier comes down to, well, so what? What difference does it make? And that brings us right back to where we left off a moment ago, the so what piece. So what difference does it make? Well, would you like to have the best possible life? Well, yeah, sign me up. The best life ever. You see, when we look at the resurrection... I'm telling you, you know what this feels like? I mean, this is so poorly done. I mean, have you ever found yourself, for lack of a better way of putting it, trapped, tricked into attending one of those so-called seminars that 
put itself out as one thing and you found out what they were really trying to do was get you to buy a timeshare. <laughs> I had this happen to me once. But uh, And the guy doing the presentation is asking all of these questions that were the obvious answer to the questions. You know, you don't want to do that, do you? Well, no, I don't. So what he's done is he's tied you down. It's called the tie-down method. These are tie-down questions. And it's it, these are the techniques used by really, really manipulative salespeople. You, you don't want to have the worst life, do you? Well, no, I don't. Well, see, you can have the best life because that's what Jesus, that's what Easter is all about. It's about you having the best life. And so there's all these things that are in the way. Religious people, yeah, they're not going to tell you about this. And those, uh, those religious churches, they're not going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you the secret. And see, you know, and it, this is this is like really, really bad, really bad tie down sales tactics kind of stuff. Action story. If we can buy in, if we'll place our faith in Jesus Christ, here's what comes. Remember, I gave you the outline before. The best possible life first is a life with meaning. Friends, one of the most tragic things about life is not death. There are some tragic deaths. I get that. But one of the most tragic things about life is not death. One of the great tragedies of life are people living their whole life and not having a purpose. Yeah, that's just terrible. Yeah, I mean, so if I live my whole life without a purpose, is that the reason I go to hell? I mean, yeah, serious. I mean, think about it. There's going to be people on the last day who are going to go to hell. Okay? Are are they going to go to hell, you know, when the books are open, it's going it, it, to, next to their name, it's going to say, John Smith. And then you, you know, you, you find the person's name, you, you put your finger underneath the name and then you slide over and it'll give the reason why they're going to hell. Uh-oh. Yeah. He lived his whole life without a purpose. To hell with you. You, you didn't have a purpose. Oh no, that's tragic. Is that the reason why God sends people to hell is because they lived a life without a purpose. Living all of life and not knowing what the meaning is. Not knowing why I'm here, why God put me here, and, and that there's something more to life. To be blunt, folks, i got to tell you this. The good life is not good enough. The good life just isn't good enough. Now, if looking good, and if feeling good, and if having enough money, if having everything that you could possibly want, if all of those things were enough, then Hollywood would be the happiest and most contented place on earth. Instead, Hollywood has the highest divorce rate, the highest substance abuse rate, and the highest suicide rate. And yet, that's the, the pocket of the country that people would look at them and say, well, man, they got money, they got looks, they got fame, they have it all. It's never been enough. And don't miss this next statement. A lot of us confuse a full life with a meaningful life. See, I have no doubt that your life is full, my life is full. But a lot of us confuse what it means to have a full life with having a meaningful life. So what happens is, so we search for more things to fill our, our lives up, to fill it up with stuff. And we think if I get the right thing or I do the right thing, if I get that last thing in my life, whatever that thing might be, whatever that possession, whatever that, that um, the, the new object of my affection, the new gadget, whatever it might be, the relationship, if I get that in my life, then life will have meaning. And so we search for meaning. And what happens is this, we search through our sports, we search through our hobbies, we search through our relationships, we search through sex, we search through food, we search through our accomplishments, we search for it through our paycheck, we search in all kinds of ways. But the problem is, it wears off. 
And so I have to go get something else. I have to fill it yet again. See, what you're looking for is something that goes on and lasts forever. What you're looking for is something that gives your life lasting meaning, soul meaning, eternal meaning. Where do you get that kind of meaning? From the person of Jesus Christ. A couple of verses for you. Colossians chapter 3. Christ gives meaning to your life. Simple statement. Jesus Christ gives meaning to your life. I like this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. You just said Colossians 3, Christ gives meaning. So, okay, hang on. Colossians 3. I'm sure we'll find it in there somewhere. I mean, he just just referenced the whole chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked, but when uh, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Hmm. Yeah, notice all that stuff that's tied back to the cross, and this is now talking about sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit. You know, to just glibly say, oh, Colossians chapter 3 says God gives your life meaning. Only if you're not really understanding anything. I mean, really? You're just going to reference it and not read any of it? I think it would have been more powerful if you'd actually read it, don't you think, Pastor? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including an eternal future, and that future begins right now. Reading again from the message paraphrase. It starts now. It says that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, this verse tells us that this better life, whatever it might be, is somehow tied to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. And please note from the verse I just read for you, this new life is not in addition to what you have already. This is not kind of this makeover thing. I get so tired of going into the stores and you walk down the aisle and every, every uh, article on the, on the shelf, it seems, says new and improved. And all you, you know, all that is is the same old junk with a new sticker on the front of it. And, and in order to get this best life, you got to get rid of religious people. You can't go to religious churches because they don't want you to have this best life. They're, they're actually blocking you from getting it. And i got to tell you, God is not about, about trying to dress up the old you. He's all about giving you a new you, a new future, a new beginning. He'll take all of your past, your bad decisions, your mistakes, your sins, your faults, your failures, whatever it might be. He takes them, wipes them clean, and start fresh. What an incredible gift. Start fresh, yeah. You hope you uh, do better the second time around, right? To start fresh and new. And on top of all of that, on top of all of that, he gives you something to live for. Don't confuse something to live on for something to live for. 
You see, what you have to live on, that's the good life. When you have something to live for, that's the best life. You see, the world won't tell you this next statement because it doesn't want you to know this, but I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Yeah, so the world won't tell you this. Religious people won't tell you this. Religious churches won't tell you this, but he'll tell you. And the truth is simply this. The more that people live for themselves, the more that people live for their own self-interest, the more miserable they become. You see, in our world setting, we think, if I live for myself, if I watch out for me, I'll, get, I'll be happier. No, you won't. You become more miserable. You see, here's why, folks. You are actually made by God to live a meaningful life. You are made by God to have a life of significance. And that significant life, it starts when you start living for God. When you have God in your life, there's a meaning you can't possibly... When you start living for God. No repentance. No forgiveness of sins. No, this is when you start living for God. Law, not gospel. Possibly imagine when you discover real happiness, real meaning, real purpose, real significance, that's all found in Jesus Christ. The better life, number one, is a life with meaning. Second thing it means, this, life, this better life, this best possible life, is a life full of energy. Wouldn't you like more energy? Apparently, you're going to have more energy. Yeah, you know, I... I've been kind of, you know, having a hard time waking up lately, you know, May, maybe probably because of my continual problems with insomnia, but man, I sure would like to have more energy. It is a life full of energy. You ever get tired just thinking about the things you've got to do in your life? You ever start those days or go to bed that night and you go, I just hate getting up tomorrow because you know what's on your list. You know what's on your agenda. Do you, have you heard of or do you remember the town of Ridgewood, New Jersey? number of years ago, they made the news because here's what happened. One mother was fed up with all the stuff. You know, I can't wait to see all of the Bible passages that promise us energy. I can't wait to see them. I, I wonder when he'll get to them. In their lives. They had all this stuff, all these schedules to keep, and she got fed up. So she went to the town council meeting and got the town council to pass a resolution that on one particular Tuesday night at 5 o'clock, everything in town stops. No meetings, no stores, no, you know, I mean, no gatherings. She went to the school. She got them to buy in. She got this great following where the school said on this particular Tuesday night, no sporting games, no practices, no homework, no nothing. Everything in town was going to close at 5 o'clock. So that one night, and they called it this, get ready, ready, set, relax night. That was the thing. They're going to have one night for ready, set, relax. Everyone was excited about it until it got closer. And then when it got closer, people began looking at each other, realizing they've never done this. So what are they going to do with all that time with their family? So irony is they began to research and send out notes to people saying, we don't know what to do for our family time. Give us suggestions. And here's how great we are in our society. You know where it all ended up? Somebody said, you know what we should do? We should make a contest to see who can have the best family night ever. And the whole thing spiraled out of control because they made it this huge contest to see who could have the best night ever. No, no wonder we're, we're whack jobs in life. No wonder we're running ragged. We don't even know how to stop for a moment and relax. You ever notice how in your life, when your energy is low, problems always seem to be bigger? So learning how to relax is part of your best life possible that Jesus wants you to have but religious people don't want you to know about. They're going to block you from it. Religious churches, they, they, oh, oh, oh no, they don't want you to know about this. And yet I don't see him 
teaching this from the Bible, do you? You ever notice how when you're tired, the smallest of problems look big? And ever notice when you're tired, the big problems look overwhelming? Friends, when you're running on your own energy, you need to know you are a power shortage waiting to happen. And you were never meant to live a life on your own where you're always tired. And a lot of us are always tired. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and look what I'll give you. I'll give you rest. Don't you want that in your life? That's yeah, come to me, all you who are weary and late. I'll give you rest. Yes, you see that proves it right there. Jesus has all this energy he wants to give you, and he's going to give it to you by giving you some relaxation. In fact, you know, Jesus, you know, he's like, you know, one of those day spas, you know. You come to Jesus, and you know what's going to happen? He's going to give you you know, a pedicure and a, and a manicure and a, one of those, um, what, what kind of massages do they have? Deep tissue massages. You know, I, <laughs> I have to think about this. I've never had one. Okay. So you get a deep, deep tissue massage and, um, and he's going to put cucumbers on your eyeballs and, and, and give you a mud bath too. So, you know, cause you come to Jesus, he's going to give you rest. Is that what that passage means? Well, let's look at it in context and see what's going on there. Matthew 11, we're going to start at 16, because you need to see the full discourse of what's going on here to grab the, the context and understand the point that Jesus is making. Jesus here isn't promising here deep tissue massage. That's not what's going on here, or more energy, you know, after you learn how to have a life of significance. Matthew eleven sixteen. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John, the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. For all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Considering the religious context here, 
Judaism at this point had been taken over by two rivaling sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were the reigners, you know, the ones kind of religiously in, in, the, in, in charge, so to speak. And their religion was all about works. And Jesus calls them all to repent and be forgiven and to believe the good news, and they persist in their works-based religion. And Jesus there calls down woes on them for not repenting, and, and then says, take my yoke upon you. His burden is light. That's right, because salvation is free. Christianity is all about what Christ has done for us. And that's not being proclaimed in this sermon. And even when he attempts to try to get to a biblical passage, he totally mangles the meaning of it. And what are we losing? We're losing Christ and the gospel. That's what we're losing sense of rest and that sense of peace. Maybe you came to Easter this morning pretty tired. Yep, you got a good front on because, you know, you're coming with a group of people, but you know what happened before you walked through those doors. You know what took place last, last night and yesterday and last week. And maybe you came in here a little bit tired, a little worn out, maybe on edge. Maybe you came in today worn out and giving out and giving up. Maybe giving up on your marriage, maybe giving up on your job, giving up on your kids, giving up on some relationship. And maybe you're just plain tired and weary. And I would say to you, please don't give up. Look up. Because God has an answer. Look up and say to God, you know what? I, God, I, I want your energy. I need your power. I cannot do this on my own. I want your energy in my life. The Bible tells us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that he gives to any one of us who will ask. Really? So I can, I can tap into that extra power source to make up for the power that I don't have, right? See, so that's what Jesus' resurrection is all about, giving us power to bridge the gap between, you know, my energy to work something out, which, you know, comes short, and then Jesus' energy, I can just tap into that so the two of us can work together so that I can have more power. So he'll, the best life ever, best possible life is a life full of energy. Let me give you the last one. A life freed by grace. Now, okay, will he steer into the biblical gospel here? That's a good question. The best possible life is a life that is freed by grace. Romans chapter 7, now in Christ... We are free to live a new life in the freedom of God. Now, because of Jesus Christ, we are free to live a new life in the freedom of God. We Americans... Because of Jesus Christ, what has he done? What did Jesus do? You haven't preached him at all. If you know, I mean, you're obviously trying to... You, you have in mind your audience is somebody who isn't a Christian. They haven't learned nothing about Jesus at this point. Nothing. Because of Jesus Christ, what does it mean? We sure love our freedom, so we ought to love this incredible gift by God. We love our freedom, so when he says, I'm going to give you the freedom to live a free life, freed by grace, we ought to jump all over that. Now, don't forget what grace is. What is it? Grace is when God gives us something that I can't possibly earn myself, I can't do this on my own, and yet in God's grace, he gives it to me. Okay. Something I can't possibly earn or deserve given to me as a gift from God. So, so what's he giving me? Say, okay, well, what does Jesus Christ free us from? Freed from what? Let me give you a couple of areas. How about freed from guilt? Free How does he do that? 
Freed from guilt. How does, what do you mean freed from guilt? He just says, stop being guilty. Okay, I'm going to free you from guilt. What do you mean? Freed from guilt. I mean, you know right and wrong. I know right and wrong. I know what, how to do right. I know how to do wrong. I, we tend to err on wrong, don't we? We try to cover it up with right. Yeah. So we got past. All of us have a past. We have things. Yeah, and you have a present too. In our lives. He says, I'll free you from any guilt for your past. I'll wipe it all, all clean. Oh, well, that's great. What does that mean? How did he do it? How about freed from the fear of death? So Jesus is going to just, you know, carte blanche. I'm just going to wipe it free. Or did he actually suffer the consequences that we deserve by dying on the cross for our sins? He didn't just wipe it clean, did he? He bore the guilt and shame himself that we deserved. Big difference. You know, there are quiet moments in your life and in mine where you sit there and you think about the end or think about death and maybe you lose someone tragically in your life. And, I, and admittedly, a lot of us put that aside. I don't want to think about that. Uh, how about being freed from ever having to worry about that again? Freed from that fear of death or fear of dying. How about freed from the hurts that other people cause in our lives? Some of us have some bitterness. That yeah, how about all of that? Yeah, I mean, you, you keep asking, how about, how about, I mean, you, you sound like a salesman trying to sell me something. You know, how about, you know, hey, how about if uh, Jesus frees you from your car loan? Yeah, 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 he can do that. How about if Jesus, you know, if he, uh, if he, uh, like, you know, frees you from your student loans? Yeah, 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 no, Jesus can do that too. How about if Jesus, um, you know, he frees you from a bad job? Yeah, yeah, you know, he give you the inside tracks so that you can get, how about that? Yeah, yeah. You're just making stuff up. Why don't you read the Bible, sir? Your job is to preach the word. That we're carrying. We're carrying some anger and resentment. And Jesus Christ can free you of that. It's a liberating thing. Please remember, when you're yeah. angry at someone else, when you're bitter towards someone else, you're not hurting them. You're draining your life of energy. And Jesus yeah, I'm sure you are. Jesus says, I'll free you of that. Really? Where did he say that? Freed from the hurts of others. How about freed from having to live up expectations of others? Yeah, where, where does it say that? Here's what I know about today. Today's Easter. Not all of us, but many of us are going to go to homes, and some of you have been dreading going to that family gathering because you're going to walk into a setting where there's family members there that have some expectation of how you're to live your life, and you know you... And Jesus will free you from that. Wow. No, Is he going to have a chat with that relative of mine? Don't measure up, so you're dreading going. How about being freed from those expectations? How about freed from worry, freed from anxiety, freed from boredom, freed from a meaningless life? Jesus is going to free me from boredom? No way. Jesus sets us free from all of those things. He sets you free from trying to earn God's approval, from always having to try to do the right thing. Now, some people think, well, you know, the idea that God loves me and would give me all these things, I don't even know if God likes me or likes people, let alone loves me. So you don't understand grace then, if that's your question. Well, why don't you explain it to us from the Bible? You know, the Bible talks about this, right? Maybe we can look at some of those wonderful grace passages in context so that they can understand that. If you're saying, I don't know if God likes me or loves me, I don't get that way, you really don't understand grace. So let me give to you, in just a couple of sentences, let me give to you the whole story of the Bible in just a couple of sentences. Okay. Now, this is not an excuse for not reading your Bible, but I'm going to condense it down. Well, what's your excuse for not teaching the Bible during this Easter sermon and talking about all your ideas? In just a couple of senses, it goes like this. Here's the whole story of the Bible in a couple of senses. You were made by God to have a relationship with him.
God made man because he wanted desperately to have a relationship with him. And what God wants of us... God made man because he desperately wanted to have a relationship. Okay. God, I don't recall that passage. God loves you, he cares about you, and he wants you to know him and to love him. So God makes us to have a relationship with him. Not religion, relationship. God's not giving you all these rules of things you have to do to keep him happy. He just wants to have a walk with you and talk with you and have a relationship. But he, he just wants to have a... He, you know, he's obviously very needy, and he just wants to have a walk and a talk with you. Here's the problem. God is perfect. God is absolutely holy. And Cue sappy music. Now this is for the emotional manipulation portion of the sales pitch. By the definition of holy, God's ho in God's holiness, he can't have unholy things in his life. I mean, unholy can't... So uh, that's a problem. So we've got a needy God and he's holy too. And so the neediness is probably keeping him even lonelier. Be, can't be dirtied, if you will, by unholy. So God is absolutely perfect. So here's the problem. Um, God is perfect. You are not. God is perfect. I am not. Because I do have sins, I do have failures, I have the things in my life that I carry. So here's the problem. God says, I'm going to come down, I want to have a relationship with you, and I'm right here. But I got this gap, and this gap is filled with the sin, it's with, with all the, the things of life that keep me separate from God. If I was a non-Christian, I would have no idea what on earth you're talking about. And, we, and we're saying, yeah, I don't know how, to, I don't know how to, to bridge that gap. Well, the truth is, you can't bridge the gap. So God says, I'll take care of it. Bible tells us that God comes to earth in the form of a human being in his name Jesus and the Bible tells us that Jesus comes Jesus was perfect he had no sin he came to take the sins of the world but more importantly he came to take your sin and he came to take mine and the whole intent of his coming in this earth so we're hang on a second here I am obligated I think contractually at this point you know that was a gospel nugget. So, you know, I mean, he, he's at the very end. We're going to steer in, you know, you know, try to get that gospel in there and wedge it in there. You know, he couldn't do it biblically by actually preaching it from the text. So he's racing here to give you the Bible, the whole Bible in a minute. It's some of the stuff he said is completely crazy and actually kind of messes up the gospel. But at the end there, he says, Jesus dies for your sins. So there it is. <laughs> It went really fast. He's doing some fast talking. I hope you didn't blink while the gospel was being mentioned because you may have missed it. Is that he would take my sin and your sin so that we could enjoy a relationship with God. And I want to tell you right now, for many of us, we can't even begin to understand how great that relationship is. Yeah, and religious people and religious churches, don't they won't tell you this. You don't even begin to understand, but Jesus, I'm going to take the sin so that once again, you can start again, a new beginning, and you can have... New beginning, that means you got to get it right the second time. A relationship with God. You can have a life that's full of meaning. You can have a life that's full of energy. A life that is freed by grace. See, that grace gave you, you know, makes it possible for you to have meaning and energy. Which of the apostles um, used this technique to convince people they need to make a decision to be a Christ follower? It's a loaded question, by the way. The answer is none of them did. And even the language I used isn't found in the Bible. I would think some of you would say, man, that sounds good. How do, how do I get that? Yeah, how do I get that? I, you know, I got to get me some more energy, you know? I don't care about the significance part, you know, I'm kind of getting old and, you know, I'm getting ready to retire, but, you know, I could use some more energy. I mean, you know, considering, in fact, I'm getting older, you know, eh, you know, at my age, I'll take anything I can get. So what do I got to do? 
Now, not everyone's saying that. I got it. Some of you are saying, okay, sounds good, but I don't know. Take your time. Think it through. Come back. We'll, we'll dialogue more. That's right. You know, you, you just kick the tires on the car, you know, and, you know, and, you know, don't worry. I'll go talk to my sales manager. We'll make you an offer you can't refuse. But some of you might be there and say, you know, I like that. I want that. So, so how do you get that? Well, it's pretty straightforward. You yeah. invite Jesus Christ into your life. Oh, that's all there is. Okay. You invite Jesus. So sit down, go to the, you know, maybe go to the Hallmark store, get a couple of nice, really, you know, professionally designed invitations and send Jesus an invitation. Wow. I, who, who knew that's all it took? Jesus Christ into your life. You simply say this in your own heart to God. You say, you know, Jesus, I want you. I want what Scott's talking about. Yeah, I want energy and significance. This isn't repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is, I've been told that my life is going to be better. I, you know, I need more peace. I, uh, I need to relax more. I need some more energy. All these benefits are going to be mine. And all I got to do is invite Jesus into my heart. This is not synonymous with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Praying whatever he's going to pray is powerless. No Christians are being made here at this time. I want a life with meaning, and I want energy. I want you, so thank you. Thank you for coming to this earth. The simple story I just gave you, thank you for dying for my sins, for setting me free. I want to follow you. Now, yeah, I want to follow you so I can get more energy and have some more significance in my life. Here's the other thing you're probably going to have to say. Jesus, i got to confess, I don't get a lot of this. I don't understand it. Yeah, because you didn't teach any of it from the Bible. But at face value, if you can change my life, you help me, you teach me. You, yeah, I need some life change. You show me, but if you can change my life, I want that. Yeah, so I, 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 I need to invite Jesus in so I can get more energy, I can have some significance, and maybe experience some life change. Again, this is not the same thing as repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Have these sinners been driven to their knees and shown their need for a Savior? Have they felt the fires of the wrath of God burning under their feet because they know they're guilty before a holy and just God? Not even close. I, I want to I I trade out my agenda for your agenda. I, I want to trade my good life for the best possible life. Yeah, because, you know, my good life's like a bologna sandwich. <clears throat> Sorry. Friends, you do that, and you can't imagine what God has in store for you. Wow, yeah. Tell that to the martyrs, the people who, after confessing Christ, being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ, were then marched into the arena and fed to wild animals. You can't imagine the life that Jesus has for you. You give your life to Jesus Christ, you can't even imagine. I could try to describe it to you, but you can't see it. Yeah. You know, what about those slaves uh, that Paul wrote to them? Obey your masters. Yeah. Where was their great life of significance? They stayed in slavery all of their lives. Until you begin to experience it. Let me end with this story. Young Christian couple in... Not a biblical story. In a, a suburb outside of Los Angeles named Ken and C.J., they have they own a deli and a convenience store and in this suburb there's a homeless man named Garland 
And this homeless man, everyone knew him. He slept in the park and any place he could find. People stayed away from him. He smelled. He didn't shower. He was odd. He was different, uh, maybe even a little frightening. But Ken and CJ decided that they were just going to love this guy. And so they would invite him into the store. Whenever he'd come into the store, they would feed him. They would give him something to drink. They said to him, anytime you walk in here, you're going to be fed and cared for. But beyond that, they just cared for him. They, were, they befriended him. They encouraged him. They had a kind word for him. Well, one night came and they got broken into. Their store got broken into. Number of things taken, expensive things. And everyone in town, including the police department, had their suspect. It was Garland, the homeless guy who lives in the park. He had to be the guy. Now... This couple knew it couldn't be their friend, Garland. In fact, just the day before, they had given him a basket filled with very expensive things because he had stopped in, so they gave him a bunch of stuff. They knew it couldn't be him. So they were surprised when they saw the police pull up and out of the car, here's Garland handcuffed, and the police are carrying this basket because they're sure that they caught him with the goods. And Ken, the owner, just for a quick second, looked up and saw Garland's face and saw his head down, completely, utterly embarrassed and broken, having to go through this. And Ken immediately was broken himself because he knows Garland didn't take the stuff. So as soon as the police walked in, Ken immediately said, oh, to the policeman, he said, thank you so much for bringing Garland back to the store and Garland for bringing his basket with him. Garland, we forgot to put some things in your basket yesterday when you were here. And by the way, and Ken was just fishing here, he goes, and by the way, I forgot to give you the change I, do, I owed you. And the police were kind of confused as they took things and put it back in the basket. And, and then uh, Ken went to the cash register and got out $38.66. Who knows where that number came from? Gave it to Garland and then looked at the police and said, he doesn't have a ride anywhere, so would you be so kind to make sure you take him wherever he needs to go? And of course, the police unhandcuffed him and said, yeah, sure, uh, he's not the guy. About a week later, Garland died in his sleep in the park. Sometime later, Ken and CJ got a call from an attorney that said, could you please come to my office? Because Garland uh, had a will, believe it or not, and he left you uh, the, the uh, heirs in his will. So they went, not knowing what to expect, and the attorney had this bag there, and he said, uh, it's not much. We haven't even opened it yet because that's what he asked, but he said, this is all he has. And in fact, the note on the will, Garland wrote himself, to Ken and CJ, I want you to have everything in my bag. So they opened the bag, they found three things. One, they found a bag of birdseed. Second thing, they found a Bible. And inside the Bible, they found a deposit slip from a savings account. On the top of the savings account, they found out that Garland had opened this account in not only his name, but in Ken and CJ's name as well. And this, uh, this, uh, certificate, this um, deposit slip was marked with a certain page of the Bible. So they looked at this, this deposit slip and they found that the last deposit was just the day before he died, and it was a deposit for $38.66 in his account, which brought the grand total up to just under $4 million. Garland was far wealthier than anyone had ever known. And that little deposit slip was marking this verse in the Bible. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was alone and away from home, and you invited me into your house. Jesus said, when you did it for the least of these, my people, you did it for me. Garland had a wealth that no one imagined. 
Friends, here's the piece I want you to get. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, no one understood the wealth and the riches that he had and was willing to give to anyone who would follow him. And that's why I say to you, when you give your life to Jesus, you step into a relationship full of wealth and riches you can't even imagine. That's why Jesus said, and you're about to come alive as well. Think about the truths of Scripture, of Easter, having a life full of meaning, have a life filled with energy, having a life freed by grace. Stand, please, let me pray. Yeah, I'm not going to let you pray for us. And here's the reason why. Because at this point, this isn't about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is about, well, doing something nice to Jesus so I can get energy and significance and you know all that kind of stuff. And what little was said about, well, forgiveness of sins... Never explained at all. No one was brought to repentance. No one was brought to contrition and sorrow for their sins. No one there was crying out for the real forgiveness they really need from their crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't preached. The gospel was not really correctly proclaimed. God's word was not taught. And these sinners were not brought to repentance and faith and trust in their crucified and risen Savior. A crime was perpetrated in Vermont on Easter Sunday. And that same crime was perpetrated in pulpits all across the world. And probably in pulpits in your town. Because we've been overrun with pastors will not do what God's word calls them to do. They're teaching false doctrine, scratching itching ears, and telling people what they want to hear, rather than telling them the truth. And this was an example of it. Sad. Truly sad. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And would love to know what you thought. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>